Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Bradley Lectures podcast. I'm your host, Tal Fortgang. I'm a researcher in the Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies Department here at the American Enterprise Institute, and I'm joined today by my colleague and friend, Will Baird. Hi, Will. Hi, Tal. It's great to have you here. Uh, We're very excited to discuss a lecture called The Cultures of Hollywood by Michael Medved. Uh, It was given in January of 1993 when uh, you and I were nothing more than an idea. I was a little more than an idea. I don't know about you. (laughs) Uh, I don't know what I was in January of 1993. But that is neither here nor there. So uh, let's let's talk a little bit about Michael Medved that set the table for this lecture. He he has just written a book called Hollywood versus America, Popular Culture and the War on Traditional Values. Uh, what, what was sort of the zeitgeist uh, then? You're a movie buff. Set the table for us. Yeah. Um, so during the 80s, you definitely saw, I mean, it's kind of a stereotypical 80s movie, lots of violence. I and mean, one of the things he's very concerned about is the level of profanity and nudity. And that had definitely been increasing uh, over the 80s. And this was before, kind of, he makes a speech just on the cusp of uh, what we often think of today as the Disney Renaissance. So there was not a ton of, um, you know, I'm actually not sure if Beauty and the Beast had even come out yet. Um, the kind of 90s Disney that we know today hadn't really taken shape yet. Uh, and so there wasn't a ton of film content being produced uh, that was family-friendly or aimed at families. Right. He does mention that we'd seen... Aladdin, I think it just came out. Aladdin, which was... Stunning and successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's let's back up a second. What what makes this period so interesting? What what made you want to go back and talk about uh, this period in film? I know you're you're a film buff and you yeah. you like exploring uh, the development of thematic and production threads over time. What what stands out about this era? So I think it really is a kind of he he gives a speech. I think a kind of kind of between eras. So, kind of by the end of the 80s, there were less of what we'd think of as stereotypically 80s films, but you weren't really getting into, the 90s actually saw, in the mid to late 90s actually saw a huge resurgence in amazing films. In 1994, The Lion King, Forrest Gump, Pulp Fiction, The Shawshank Redemption, and Leon the Professional all came out the same year. In 1999, The Matrix, The Sixth Sense, Office Space, Being John Malkovich, Eyes Wide Shut, and Fight Club all came out in one year. And so they're really... In the 90s, there were a couple of years that just were jam-packed with amazing films, and 1992 was not not one of those. Um, so I think you're kind of in between these two eras. And obviously, looking at the film industry today, it's totally different in ways that we can get into later. Um, so it's, it's a very interesting time to see what a kind of cultural conservative's critique of Hollywood would be. So you mention the critiques of a, of a cultural conservative, uh, in this case in the early 1990s. Uh, let's let's get into this a little bit. What do you see as the core critiques uh, that Medved levels? Uh, and as someone who's sort of culturally conservative yourself, do they reflect the critiques that have always been leveled against film uh, or, or popular culture uh, or the kind of critiques that you hear today? Yeah, so I think – so his, his main critique is that there's a disconnect between uh, what kind of what population at large wants out of film and what the film industry is producing. Um, so he talks about the lo- amount of profanity in the films, um, the number of films that are R-rated, and at the time, I think that was definitely um, a real a th- a thing that was happening. I think it's more or less accurate. You know, he cites surveys about people's satisfaction with film, um, whether or not people want less profanity, 
And it is true that despite people wanting less profanity um, and R-rated movies making less money, he says 61% of movies were R-rated. Since then, since sure, so I looked up some numbers. Since 1995, about half of all movies have been R-rated. So the the portion has been has gone down. Um, at the same time, the relative ranking of profitability still has R-rated movies at the bottom, make about 11 or 12 million on average, uh, versus PG-13 taking in 35 million on average per movie. But at the same time, and again, I only have data from 95 on for this, but for the last five years of the 90s, R-rated movies actually had higher attendance in terms of number of tickets purchased per film than any other rating. Um, and it was only around 2000 that that trend reversed, um, which is, I mean, I don't, I, again, I don't know what it was, what the numbers in terms of attendance were in 91, um, but it's kind of interesting that even if they're making less money, more people are seeing them. There's an interesting kind of uh, wrinkle in the in the debate. So Edved clearly has an interpretation of the agenda that's driving the themes and motifs in the films of the era, and he wants to say that it's uh, the cultures of Hollywood pushing an anti-religious and and pretty political agenda on moviegoers who are not really demanding that kind of thing. But is there a trade-off between uh, simply catering to mans of the masses uh, and a kind of creativity that you need to be a little bit transgressive maybe to to achieve sure and there's and there's also you know if there's catering to the demands of the masses which can take away from you know, how much artistic license you have there's also catering to the demands of hollywood itself but to kind of give an example of kind of where things were then and where things are now in terms of all this so for 1992 the year before medved gave this talk three of the top 10 highest grossing films were r-rated there's not been a top 10 r-rated film in the past few years and in fact since 2017 2017 to today each of those years, nine out of the top ten highest-grossing films were either part of a franchise or a remake. And so, in a way, like they're all uh, PG, maybe some of them are PG thirteen, but they're these mass market, you know, Avengers, Marvel movies, DC movies, the comic book movies, which you know are all essentially more or less the same movie, have the same characters, more or less the same plot. People love it. Destroy stuff, save the world. Exactly, exactly. They're very, very straightforward morality plays, like the good guys win, except for the one Avengers when they then in the next one fixed it. Oh, no spoilers, no spoilers. Um, so in, in a sense, they're very family-friendly, but there's no uh, there's no soul to them, right? They're, they're totally products of, um, I think of it as an IP farm. They just have all this IP that they're just harvesting the IP and sending it out and... Um, I think there's a lack of the kind of movies that you used to see, not not exactly at the turn of the 90s when he's talking, but in the 80s and 70s of kind of uh, middle market, mid-brow movies that have some violence, uh, have some artistic merit, but aren't overly dedicated to be, being kind of art house or Oscar bait style. We kind of have a situation now where you have these huge tentpole films that are just remakes or franchises, and then their success funds the creation of Oscar bait and art house films, very little in between. We'll be back in just a few minutes. In the meantime, enjoy Michael Medved's 1993 Bradley lecture, The Cultures of Hollywood. Now, I wrote up this book that has been so lavishly controversial, basically to ask the question why. Why are people so sour on movies? Why is it as you travel around the country, you know, I'm fairly recognizable because I have a TV show, so people come up to me in bookstores or on airplanes or in airports everywhere and start talking movies. And why is it that virtually everyone who does that expresses some sense of complaint, some sense, boy, do they stink, boy, is that lousy, boy, are things terrible. What's the problem? Is the acting bad? 
my assertion, my assessment would be that the acting is phenomenally good, that the general level of acting in American film has never been higher than it is today. Is the camera out of focus? The camera work is dazzling. I mean, it's dazzling. In the most wretched pieces of celluloid excrescence, you will see phenomenally beautiful camera work. It happens all the time. My assertion is that it's not the camera that's out of focus. It's the values of the motion pictures. It's the values of the popular culture in general. It's the cultures of Hollywood that are out of focus. As I report in my book, Hollywood's dirty little secret is that despite all the good news they're always telling us about the box office grosses, that reflects only one thing, the rise in ticket prices, which have risen at almost three times the rate of inflation. In terms of motion picture attendance, 1991 was the worst year in 15 years. And guess what? They just released last week the figures for 92. The worst in 16 years. The movie audience continues to shrink. 40% of the people in this country now say, just as we heard earlier, that they don't go to movies anymore. You know, 80% of the people in the United States, according to a Newsweek poll in October, said that motion pictures contain too much sex and violence. You know what? You can't get 80% of the people in this country to agree that Elvis is dead. But on this point, they agree. So this conclusion that we've all reached, that there are tens of millions of people who are concerned about the popular culture, about the messages it sends, about the values it conveys, that would hardly seem to be a controversial proposition. The question then that I would ask is why has my own dear little sweet book caused such a tremendous storm of controversy? Now, here, I wanted to begin tonight by, by sharing with you the fact that, that I have received the kind of reviews on this book that one can only dream about in your most feverish nightmares. Um, let me just give you a, a brief sample. Peter Bart, uh, who is the editor of Variety, wrote a front page review in Weekly Variety that read in part, Hollywood versus America is a chilling glimpse of what happens when a humorless authoritarian mind is inundated by the noise of pop culture. Purporting to be an analysis of the state of the arts, the book reads instead like a nervous breakdown set in type. By the end, it's clear that all Medved wants is to be in seclusion someplace, watching The Sound of Music nonstop for the remainder of his days. <laughs> I have to say at the outset of any discussion of these issues, I am a foe of censorship. I am clearly opposed to governmental intrusion in the popular culture in any form. I have an entire chapter called The Censorship Temptation. I'm opposed to production codes. I am also opposed to conspiracy theories. I have two entire chapters devoted to the two most popular conspiracy theories about Hollywood, one of which alleges that some kind of mystical gay conspiracy controls the movie industry and is ruining its standards, and the other that uh, alleges that this is part of the long-standing favorite, the international Jewish conspiracy, uh, and I also debunk that notion. I make very clear repeatedly in my book, as I want to tonight, that my feeling about what's wrong with Hollywood has nothing to do with conspiracies, has nothing to do with people trying to do evil or trying to erode the moral fiber of the country or trying to break things down or anything of the kind that most of the problem, in fact, nearly all of it, stems from manifestly good intentions. So having said all of this and being very clear about all of this in my book, why should it provoke this, this incredible storm of condemnation? And I've given this a great deal of thought. And I am convinced 
that the most controversial aspect of this controversial book is not my suggestion that the people in Hollywood are practicing bad artistry. Everybody knows that. It's my suggestion that they're also practicing bad business. My notion that in creating the trash that they're creating, they not only are offending millions of people, they are losing money in the process. That is a relatively new contention. I think it's one that's incontrovertible. We'll speak about it tonight. And it's one that makes the industry and its apologists hugely, hugely uncomfortable. My entire point is that Hollywood is out of touch. That while it seems to be assaulting values held by millions of Americans, it is also damaging, if not destroying, its own self-interest. Why is this so uncomfortable for people in the movie business and their apologists? I'll tell you. Because it removes their primary excuse for doing what they do. We've all heard this time and again. The line is, if the screen is covered with sleaze and gore, it's your fault, it's not our fault. It's what you want. It's what you pay to see. We're a perfect capitalistic candy machine. If they're right, this could be a very short lecture tonight. Because the culture of Hollywood, what does it matter? It's just a responsive organization. It's a responsive institution that is there to give the public what it wants, to determine through focus groups and surveys exactly what the people of America desire, and then to feed that back to them. You hear this all the time. Recently, in defending Hollywood, in, in November, actually, of 1992, Terry Semmel, who's president of Warner Brothers, said, movies don't start trends, they follow trends. Or similarly, Paul Verhoeven, in a panel discussion in 1991, Paul Verhoeven, director of Basic Instinct and RoboCop uh, and Total Recall and other major contributions to Western culture, declared, art is a reflection of the world. If the world is horrible, the reflection in the mirror is horrible. In other words, don't blame us, blame yourselves. There's one very clear bit of evidence about this, and this has generated a tremendous amount of discussion since this part of my book became public. And that is, look at the very simplest level for analyzing the contents of movies. In fact, it's so simple, it's almost simple-minded, which is the MPAA rating, the Motion Picture Association of America rating. In 1991, according to the MPAA's own figures, of all movies released in America, 61% were rated R for adults only. Now, wouldn't that mean that those are the movies that do the best business? And I sort of stumbled across this because I, I just checked it out. I ran it through a computer based on entertainment data report. And guess what? As two stars of one of my favorite movies of 1992 would have it, not, it's not the way it is. R-rated movies do terribly in comparison to PG, PG-13, and G-rated films. The only category of film which does worse than R is NC-17, just as one would expect. This makes perfect sense, of course, because obviously if you're catering to a larger audience base, including children, you can bring more people to the films. But you know, we've had this all hammered into us so constantly. I mean, I constantly get this, but what about Basic Instinct? Didn't it? Of course it did well. If you have 61% of your releases rated R, then obviously some of them are going to do well. Just stands to reason. But you know what? Take a look at the whole 1980s of the 10 top grossing movies. You know how many were rated R during a decade in which the majority of all films were rated R? One. And you know what? 
you can take the measure in 1991. And in 1991, PG and G films taken together, aimed at families, did three times the median box office gross of R films. And if you measure the number of people who attended the films, it's even higher. Because in PG and G rated films, a lot of the tickets are sold to children, which are half price tickets. That's why the figures on Aladdin are so staggering. Aladdin has by far drawn the largest audience of any film in 1992 because so many of the tickets were sold at half price to kids. I think the one point that anyone can conclude is what is not going on as an intelligent and direct response to what the public wants. So if this industry isn't driven by greed, if it isn't driven by normal capitalist mechanisms in terms of the caliber of the movies that it makes and the values that those movies purvey and the potentially offensive contents of those motion pictures, what is driving this industry? And I would submit to you tonight that it is driven by a unique culture, the culture of Hollywood, or because there are so many internal contradictions in that culture, I think one might more properly say the cultures of Hollywood. Now, those cultures, all of them, <laughs> are dysfunctional. They're dysfunctional not only in terms of the dysfunctional values that they endorse and they promote, but they're also dysfunctional as a force in the business. Now, to try to focus specifically on the elements of these various Hollywood cultures, I want to look at three areas in which this business most clearly goes against its own enlightened financial self-interest. It doesn't reveal anything about an endemic culture of a place when somebody makes a movie like Aladdin, which everybody knew for two years was going to be like a license to print money. I mean, you, you, this, it didn't take any kind of cultural-driven forces to mandate Aladdin. Aladdin's an intelligent response to the marketplace. I mean, anybody could do that. And no one could do it quite as well. I mean, the Disney people did it with great artistry. It's a film that I thoroughly enjoyed. But the fact is, you don't have to question why would they make a movie like that. I'm talking about those films, those projects, those elements in this mix, where you have to ask the question, why'd they do that? Because it seems to me when you look at those elements and you can't explain it in simple market-driven terms, that's where you reveal something about the underlying values of this business. I'm going to talk about three areas. Number one, the infatuation with foul language. Number two, the profound hostility to religion and religious values. And number three, a deep love and abiding commitment to left-wing message movies. Back in studio with AEI's tech researcher and uh, resident film critic, Will Baird. Will, I have my critiques of Medved's desired insularity, shall we say, from realities of the world, which is sometimes ugly and violent, but we'll get to that in a second. I have nothing to say for his criticisms of the language employed in some of these very salty late 80s, early 90s films. Uh, is there any anything to reclaim or save the, the language? Yeah, well, so uh, a couple of movies he calls out individually are Gary Glenn Ross and Goodfellas. And first of all, Goodfellas is a mob movie. Uh, and so if you think that these guys aren't, you know, cussing up a storm, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, and Th then again, we don't really know how mobster, at I mean, least we, I don't really yes. know how mobsters speak. Sure, but in terms, 
I think there are a few people who would assert that they are more clean-mouthed than the average person. And in terms of artistically conveying mob life, I think it's you know a valid use of ink on the script. With Glengarry Glenn Ross, how much the cursing is necessary is debatable, but it's not something that people were unaware of in the making of it. And there's even a joke on the set. Uh, so Glengarry Glenn Ross, for those of you who aren't aware, is a movie uh, with a stellar cast about uh, a set of, like a, a team of salesmen who are all competing against each other for a prize, which is a, a set of leads. And on set, they frequently referred to the script as the death of an effing salesman because of the level of profanity. So they were aware and they took it kind of tongue-in-cheek. So I, th- I think they're uh, – the question is, does every movie need to be like that? Of course not, right? Um, and so I think it's about the judicious use. But as you we were saying earlier, I think at this point, many of the top movies have been somewhat neutered in terms of any sort of, like, badness in them in a, in a way that kind of makes them less realistic, less artistic. Was there anything else or anyone else you felt was uh, unfairly maligned? So he takes a few pot shots at uh, Paul Verhoeven, a Dutch director of American films uh, and some international films. And I think that's totally undeserved. Um, at this point in his career, Paul Verhoeven, he, so he also, he, Medved singles out Robocop uh, as a movie, you know, beneath any sort of artistic merit. But I think Robocop is actually a very interesting movie to look at today um, in terms of what it has to say about the militarization of police the way technology changes how people interact with each other. And in a way, you know, it's about applying military technology to police in a way that literally dehumanizes them, right? Uh, so yes, they, like the police are using these weapons of war on civilians, but it's also about, you know, what does it do to the police themselves? And Robocop ends up, you know, he like forgets he has a family, he forgets about his wife and kids. Ultimately, he's humanity overcomes that. But it's very easy with Verhoeven's films to just see them as mindless violence when it's often... Uh, you know, a deeper meaning. Well, that that brings us to the reality of violence uh, in our world. And can't help but hear this lecture uh, as one end of a debate in which we are not sure whether we should be coddling our kids less or more. And in a world of drugs and sex and violence and war and nastiness and salty language, I... Uh, is this just planting the seeds for for a generation that that can't handle the ugliness of reality, or or can that can this movement to push back against the cultures of Hollywood be synthesized or squared with uh, our desire to see uh, kids and young people inoculated uh, against the realities of the world, such that they're not sort of, uh, you know, triggered, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. uh, when when the real world comes knocking at their door. I think there's definitely a reading of that. I mean, the 90s are kind of when we began to see helicopter parenting become a thing. Uh, and so I think, yeah, the, the wish to shield children from these things. And obviously, you know, you can't take your six-year-old to see basic instinct. That's just like, out of line. Um, but the idea that they're, the backlash against violence, sex, uh, foul language and film is definitely part of a you know the, the sheltering trend. Um, it's also interesting you know to, to wonder how many kids are seeing these movies. I mean, it kind of part of his argument is that when you have all these movies, you can't take the kids to them, which depending on the movie is true. Um, but it, the kind of causal chain of what how is the damage happening from these movies to kids is questionable, which means that the desire to protect these kids from these movies, which they may or may not even be seeing, could be part of an overprotective urge. Will and I will be back in just a few minutes for one more short conversation on Michael Medved's The Cultures of Hollywood. For now, 
enjoy the rest of the lecture. First, this point of language. You know, I want to make something clear here. I am not one of those people who believes that the F word in and of itself is a threat to Western civilization as we know it. There are a lot of people out there who are terribly upset by it. As a film critic, I can tell you I get no subject in which I receive mail where people are so concerned as language about films, language in films. They're more concerned about the language than they are about the violence, the sexuality, than anything. You know, that's not my feeling. I mean, frankly, sometimes it, it becomes incredibly deadening, and, and you wish that the screenwriter could think of some different words um, and maybe try a little bit of imagination. But it, it's not something that I have a visceral reaction against. However, when you think of it as a factor in this business, it becomes very difficult to understand. You know, I think anybody who's been to the theater recently, as obviously some of you have not, has to have been struck by the explosion of the sheer number of F-words in motion pictures. Um, I saw a film last week, and let me, this, so that this lecture is not a waste for anyone who's here, let me just tell you, please save your money. Even if you were tempted, do not go out and see Body of Evidence starring Madonna and Willem Dafoe. This could be the worst film of the decade. I know the decade's young, and this may, may be premature. It's hard to imagine a worse film. I mean, it's one of those things, it has supposed to, one of these things was racy sex scenes. They could show this film at abstinence classes. I, I guarantee you I can think of nothing that would so effectively suppress the hormonal drives of even the most hormonal adolescents. This thing is pathetic. But anyway, there's a line in the film where I, I, there are ladies present, and I am sort of old-fashioned in this regard, so you'll pardon me, but there's a line in the film where the delightful star looks straight at the camera, and she says, it's true, I effed Alan, I also effed Andrew. She doesn't say F, though, as you can imagine. And yeah, I effed Frank, too. I effed all of them. That's what I do. I eff. Isn't it great to know that the spirit of Noel Coward is still alive in terms of Hollywood screenwriting? You know, but this is, I mean, I don't, I don't count the F words in movies. There is a service that I subscribe to that does out of Boca Raton, Florida. Now, I've never met these poor guys, but they're three guys who go to the screenings and they sit there with a little counter. I mean, and anybody who wants to subscribe to the service, I'll give you their name later. In any event, they've counted. They haven't done the count yet for this movie. But for instance, for Hoffa, right? Hoffa, 130 F-words. Pretty good. Not as good as Glen Gary, Glenn Ross. 148. That's more than one a minute. And the recent champ among artistic and important films was Goodfellas, Martin Scorsese's masterpiece, um, which gave us 246 F-words, which computes to a major obscenity once every 32.2 seconds of the picture's running time. Now, just think how much easier it makes it for a screenwriter. You know, you just go back to the word processor, hit the same key, again, I mean, the same word every 32.2 seconds? You know, is it necessary? You know, somehow Jimmy Cagney and Raoul Walsh, who collaborated on White Heat, were able to create the idea of a maniacal, sadistic, crazed, ganglang killer with exactly 246 fewer F-words than Scorsese used in Goodfellas. But, you know, I guess one could say that in this kind of film, we've all come to expect this particular linguistic assault. But what a lot of people don't expect and don't accept is the inclusion of this kind of language 
in PG-13 and PG movies as well. You know what's amazing is that in PG-13 movies, 39% of all PG-13 movies released in 91 used the F word. 73% used the S word, okay, meaning feces. Um, I, I don't mean to sound so prim. I mean, this is my critics would love this. I mean, this is <laughs> anal retent of Medved strikes again. But, um, now, even among PG movies to which parents gleefully take, I mean, little kids, you know, five and six-year-olds, among PG movies, you know what, how many of them use the S word? 46%. You know, what's the point? Is this box office driven? Not on your life. A media general Associated Press poll, one of the biggest polls of attitudes toward motion pictures that's been done in recent years, in 1989, asked 1,804 respondents how many thought there was too much profanity in movies, how many people thought there was too little, and how many thought it was about right. 6% um, thought it was about right. 80% thought there was too much. The rest were undecided. You know how many of the 1,804 respondents thought there was too little profanity in films? Not one! Not a single person! They couldn't find anybody out of 1,804 people, even looking under rocks. You can't find people like that. This is not a market-driven phenomenon, friends. You know, there's a movie that came out earlier this year called Hero. Not a bad movie with Dustin Hoffman and Gina Davis. A big, expensive, $40 million-plus release. Dustin Hoffman, Gina Davis, Andy Garcia. The picture was an attempt to be an old-style Frank Capra feel-good movie. Not a great attempt, but, you know, okay. It was at least watchable. The film included 14 totally gratuitous F and S words. And on the phone with an official at the studio who had called to ask my reaction after I reviewed the film and what I thought its commercial prospect, I said, you are going to lose $10 million at the box office because of those 14 words. It's going to cost you. And he sort of sighed and said, yeah, yeah, we know, we know. We wanted the softer rating, but, you know, I said, so why, why include these words? He said, you know, it was really Dustin. I mean, it was his artistry. He had to find the character. <laughs> the notion of equating F-words and S-words with artistry is so deeply embedded, you can't even challenge it today. Second point in which Hollywood clearly works against its own interests and ignores the sensitivities of the audience has to do with the portrayal of organized religion. Steve Martin happens to be one of my favorite actors. I think the man's enormously talented as both a serious actor and as a comedian. He also has been identified with some of the better family-oriented projects of recent years, films like Roxanne, Father of the Bride, films that, that audiences genuinely loved and, and to which they responded by enriching Mr. Martin substantially. Steve Martin announced several years ago a project called Leap of Faith. I have been saying literally for over a year that Leap of Faith was dead on arrival. What's Leap of Faith? Leap of Faith is this stupid comedy about a crooked faith healer in a town called Rustwater, Kansas, which is identified in the script as the corn relish capital of America. And look, how is it that one little guy, right, sitting at his word processor can say with some assurance that Leap of Faith, this $40 million project, is going to be a major box office bomb years ahead of even seeing the picture? You know how I knew? And by the way, the film is a gigantic flop. Uh, it would have had to earn back at least $80 million, according to Variety, to break even. 
it so far has earned back less than nine million. Uh, I mean, it's a huge fault. They basically had to subpoena people to come to see it. Um, and the difficulty here is it takes no brains to tell that movies about corrupt clergy turn off audiences, and audiences don't go. I have challenged my fellow critics, producers, writers, anyone to think of any film in the last 10 years about a corrupt or crooked clergyman that's made a dime. None of them have, and yet Hollywood keeps making them. Movies like The Handmaid's Tale that play in the fields of the Lord, which was an equal opportunity offender that had crooked uh, Jews, Catholics, and Protestants. The Rapture, Guilty as Charged, Pass the Ammo, The Pope Must Die, one of my favorites. Nuns on the Run, The Vision, Salvation, all bombs, many of them you haven't even heard of because they played for two days or two hours and no one came. Yet Hollywood keeps repeating the formula. This is insane. This is nuts. Whoever at Paramount green-lighted Leap of Faith and said, yeah, Steve, $40 million, get Deborah Winger, get Liam Neeson, let's make this really great movie about a crooked evangelist. We'll do great. I mean, whoever, whoever green-lighted this picture, well, actually, Brandon Tartikoff did resign. Uh, <laughs> in any event, whatever you want to say about these films, they were not the product of some analysis of the public's preferences. They didn't stem from focus groups or a deep examination of what people in this country want. Any moron could look and tell that these films were not going to make any money. And you know what? It's not just the films that are explicitly about some kind of corruption in the clergy, which of course exists, and I think it would be unobjectionable if Hollywood occasionally balanced positive portrayals with negative portrayals of the clergy. I'm not calling for a return to the old days when under the old production code you had to portray ministers, rabbis, and priests only as positive. But today it's almost as if we have a production code in reverse where they're portrayed only as negative. And you know what? It also turns up in all kinds of movies where you wouldn't expect it. How many people here saw Alien 3? Right? Okay. You may recall that one of the elements of Alien 3, the few, the proud, who saw Alien 3, another bomb, by the way, gigantic bomb, and, and to me, the runner-up uh, as worst movie of the year, 1992. Remember, Body of Evidence is 93. Um, but uh, the, the worst movie of 1992, if anyone wants to know, Cool World. Did anyone see Cool World with Kim Basinger? <laughs> Woof. If, <laughs> James, you said right, yes, two thumbs down. Okay, look. In any event, take a look at Alien 3. The film is you know, about this man-eating monster that invades a penal colony in outer space. You know what we find? The penal colony is inhabited entirely by convicted rapists and murderers, drooling, drooling, vicious, horrible guys who identify themselves twice as fundamentalist Christians. So we're all in this, in this prison, we're all fundamentalist Christians. You know, you talk about a gratuitous thumb in the eye. What about, you know, to talk, go from a terrible movie to a pretty darn good movie, A Few Good Men, which I thought was very well made, very well acted, except for Jack Nicholson's over-the-top scene-chewing performance. I thought A Few Good Men was a pretty well-made film, and I'm not putting it down as a film. What I'm pointing out is the totally gratuitous aspect of that film. How many people here saw it? A lot of people, okay. Where Kiefer Sutherland is the one character who every time he's on screen, and it's not that often, brings up something about his belief in God or the fact that he's a believing Christian. At one point he says, I believe in the Lord God and his son Jesus Christ, and I believe they have a code. And, and that kind of delivery, too, is, is very much part of the film. But you know that this guy, I mean, you know right away this is going to be the worst character in the film because he's a Christian. He's the one character who has identified that way. And sure enough, 
He is the last line in the film is Kevin Bacon going off to arrest Kiefer Sutherland, which is what he deserves for having put forward all this, quote, Christian nonsense. And you think this is an accident? Think it just happened that way because it was in Sorkin's screenplay? Uh-uh. Rob Reiner, director. Deep animus. Anybody see Misery? Misery, same thing. It's not a film about clergy. It's a film about a nutty, fat woman who captures her favorite writer, and yet every time you get a close-up of her, you get a little glinting gold cross at her neck. You have her several times referring to her fundamentalist Christian faith and her belief in the Bible while she's torturing, maiming, and attempting to murder James Kahn. You know, Rob Reiner, director of Misery, director of A Few Good Men, gave an amazingly candid comment the same week that A Few Good Men was released. And to me, it's astonishing that this has gotten so little attention. But Reiner told the LA Times, quote, this kind of sanctimonious crap that all these Republicans running around, right-wing, moral majority, these people are effing destroying the country. They get these people all twisted around with ideas about how morality should be, about how about just be decent to the other guy, huh? You know, if they really believed in anything, if they really believed in what they are now preaching, if they really believed in what Jesus Christ said, they wouldn't be promoting family values. Um, <laughs> what's to me amazing about this statement, other than its obvious intellectual depth, is the fact that he chose to make it the same week he's releasing a $60 million movie. Doesn't it occur to you that someone might read this and might be offended? I mean, you make a $60 million movie, you want everybody to come. You want the halt and the lame and the blind to come see your movie. Everybody. You don't want to push people away. What a deep hostility. What a bizarre way of doing business. And you know what it's based upon? It's based upon Hollywood's ignorance of the country that it serves. And I use the term serves advisedly. The fact is, once upon a time, when I used to be invited to Hollywood parties, um, I would play a little game where I would ask people, what do you think? You think you're in touch. What percentage of America goes to church or synagogue every week? I never had anyone guess more than 10%. The usual guess was 5%. As people here know, and I see Carlin Keene from uh, the AEI, who's a terrific keeper of statistics, probably knows better than I do, the true figures are between 40 and 45%, according to every survey. Go to church or synagogue every week. It's a reality you don't see in Hollywood films. And when I would confront people in the business with this reality, they'd say, can't be true. Can't be true. Say, how, why not? Why do you think it's not true? I mean, this is Newsweek reports it, Gallup reports it, Yankelovich reports Everybody reports it. Why is it not true? It's because I don't know anybody like that. Because I don't know anybody like that. And that's precisely the problem. And that's why in those few films that will have a more affectionate attitude toward religious life, they will almost invariably be set long ago or far away, like a river runs through it, where the father is quite sympathetic. He's a Presbyterian minister, and he's actually a nice guy. He actually teaches his sons fly fishing. But guess what? It's Montana in 1920s, right? It's safely far from our current reality. And the same was true of Driving Miss Daisy, which was set in Atlanta in the 1940s and 50s. And the same was true of Witness, which was set very safely in the uh, sheltered world of the Amish. And the same was true of the movie that they in the business called Witness, uh, which was A Stranger Among Us, uh, which was a, a witness-like approach to the Hasidic community in Borough Park. Uh, as long as it's exotic and far away, that's all right. But can anyone think of a religious portrayal 
set in an urban American setting that's even vaguely sympathetic, and you know what? You all can think of one because it's the perfect exception that proves my rule. Sister Act. Sister Act, right? I mean, the first Whoopi Goldberg film in memory where she doesn't use four-letter words at all and was restrained from doing so by Jeffrey Katzenberg at Walt Disney Studios. And a film that, while it doesn't portray the Roman Catholic nuns as intellectual giants by any means, they're at least nice people. You know what? The second top moneymaker of the year. Probably the most profitable film of the year. So when people talk about attacking religion, repeating this formula again and again, it's not market-driven. It's against people's market interests. And to conclude by recounting, to me, the most amazing story regarding one very, very expensive flop, a film that cost $37 million to make, earned back somewhat less than $2 million at the box office, a bad piece of work, because with the $37 million negative cost, it was probably a $50 million cost with promotion A event. It's a film called King David, starred Richard Gere, right? When I reviewed it, we talked about it as uh, the Israelite and a gentleman. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the amazing thing about this film is it concludes with King David, the biblical King David, losing his faith. He becomes an atheist at the end of the film. Um, he's very angry because his son Absalom has died, and he takes his sword and he smashes the scale model of the temple he was going to build in Jerusalem. The film is hilarious. Richard Gere uses four different accents throughout the film to show David's state of spiritual progress, I guess. But I had the opportunity to interview one of the producers of this picture. And I asked him, I said, why did you decide to take the, this is after the film had flopped and had ever been on the turkey of the year list and, and it was a big financial disaster. Directed, by the way, by Bruce Beresford, right? Director of Breaker Morant and Driving Miss Daisy and other fine films. But in any event, ask the producer, why did you make the decision to change the ending from the book? Uh, <laughs> and he said, you know, we could have gone the easy way and played to the Bible belt and made King David into some kind of a holy Joe. But we wanted a main character with more integrity. <laughs> you know, I would have thought the author of the book of Psalms would classify as a holy Joe, but little do I know. In any event, know what, whatever one wants to say about Hollywood's chronic downplaying of religion as a force in American life and negativity toward religion in film after film, it's not market-driven. And I'll tell you what else is not market-driven, and this is the third point, which is the infatuation with message movies, right? Take a look at the moment. Right now, all of Hollywood is reeling from a series of megastar megaflops that were released in Christmas of 1992. Some are busy flopping in local theaters near you right now, even as we speak. I mean, you're not seeing them, you're here. Um, but what are those films? Well, the biggest flop of all is Toys. Uh, which is, it's, again, one of the worst films of the year. A Robin Williams film uh, directed by Barry Levinson, director of Rain Man and Bugsy. You know what the movie's about? It's about an evil general who takes over a toy company and wants to convert these poor, innocent little toys into war toys because there's a Pentagon plot, right, to use these toys as weapons of war to train all the children of America to being a secret cadre of fighters who are going to destroy our enemies. Now, this film was written at the height of the Cold War by Barry Levinson. He couldn't get it made. Why 20th Century Fox decided to wait 
until the Cold War was over to release the film. Who knows? But they released it, a big message movie, big, strong, anti-military, and a message, and a gigantic flop. Um, other flops, The Distinguished Gentleman, one of Eddie Murphy's least successful films. If anyone has not seen The Distinguished Gentleman, which was written, by the way, by Marty Kaplan, who was a former uh, head speechwriter to Walter Mondale, um, The Distinguished Gentleman, who's also vice president of Disney, uh, The Distinguished Gentleman uh, features Eddie Murphy defending all of America's children against the horrific danger of high-voltage power lines. That's what the movie is about after he comes to Congress. Uh, again, the movie opened well for Eddie's fans and then proceeded to flop. Chaplin, right? A movie that no one knows how much Chaplin cost because it's financed from so many different directions, but uh, some estimates run up to $70 million. Of course, the film emphasizes Charlie Chaplin's uh, leftish politics and uh, his being victimized by the horrors of McCarthyism, a favorite theme of screenwriters and, and movie makers. And the film is a gigantic flop, playing to empty theaters even as we speak, even though it has a remarkable main performance by Robert Downey Jr., who is just sensational and deserved to be in a better movie than this one. And then Hoffa. Now, another flop. I mean, I don't, I don't know, frankly, what the message of Hoffa is. Uh, the film was far too incoherent, I think, to admit to any interpretation like that. I think it had something to do with labor unions um, <laughs> and the fact that Danny DeVito thinks they're good. Um, but in any event, let me just ask you a question here. People think that Hollywood, everything is market-driven. Do you really think the American people were crying out for a movie about Jimmy Hoffa? I mean, this is one of those other things where I was on, the re I was on record. I was on national TV saying that no one would come see Hoffa. It would fail. You know, how did I know? What a magnificent insight. Because just ask people. Are you interested in seeing a movie about Jimmy Hoffa? No. <laughs> and the fact is, the late Sam Goldwyn, who was a brighter guy than a lot of his famous quotes let on, famously said, if you want to send a message, go see Western Union. Part of the problem in Hollywood is that major movie studios have increasingly come to resemble telegraph offices. Messages are inserted again and again and again. And here you have to ask the question. Actually, my wife would probably be better situated to even deal with this because she's the clinical psychologist. And I think what we're dealing with here is a psychopathology. It's not mysterious why someone would take a successful formula like Die Hard and then give us Die Hard on a boat and Die Hard on a plane and Sylvester Stallone's new movie, Cliffhanger, is called Die Hard on a Mountain. You know, you'll have plenty of those. They all seem to work. People come to see them, no matter how bad they are. But, you know, that, it doesn't take a, a genius to understand that. It takes some kind of mystic to understand why they keep making movies about old-time radicals. You know, the most famous of them, of course, was Reds, for which Warren Beatty won Best Director of the Year Academy Award. Do you know that Reds was one of the biggest flops in Hollywood history? It cost, back in the early 80s, $45 million to make. You know, but uh, try to imagine this. You know, you're an executive for Gulf and Western, which owns Paramount Pictures, and Warren Beatty comes to you, and Warren Beatty says, hey, guys, I've got a great idea. I want to make a movie about the tragic life of America's best-known Communist Party member, John Reed. And I want to make it about his love affair with Louise Bryant, an early feminist radical, and how John Reed died at a young age. And he's so honored, he's buried in the Kremlin Wall. Now, this is the height of the Reagan era, right? Now, what do you say at, at Paramount? They didn't even ask him, suggest that he retitle his movie, Commie Dearest, right? <laughs> 
They handed him the $45 million, and Warren went on his merry way, and the film, of course, lost huge money at the box office. It wasn't alone. I mean, anybody here see The House on Carroll Street, a Kelly McGillis movie about left-wing activists who are persecuted, hounded, destroyed by merciless McCarthyites? This whole McCarthy era lives in film, I mean, constantly. Daniel, the domestic comedy about the, uh, that fun-loving Rosenberg clan, um, <laughs> Insignificance, featuring Tony Curtis playing Senator Joe McCarthy, right? I mean, uh, Garbo Talks, about another formerly blacklisted, starring Anne Bancroft or Ron Silver. Rocket Gibraltar, starring Burt Lancaster as a blacklisted screenwriter. Or most recently, Robert De Niro's film, the Robert De Niro-Annette Benning film, Guilty by Suspicion. You know what? One film after another about suffering screenwriters in the McCarthy era, nobody comes. They don't. And the same thing is true about 1960s radicals when they're portrayed. The only film about 60s radicals that ever made any money was The Big Chill, and that was because you never see them as 60s radicals. You only see them as rather prosperous yuppies. That's, but everything, Running on Empty, a good film, well-made film, about these fugitives from the FBI who had blown up a, 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 a university building back in the 60s. Absolute bomb. How about Far Out Man, right? That's Tommy Chong's movie. It's uh, one of many films that were made in the late 80s about a spirit, free spirit from the 60s coming back and teaching commitment to the zombied out survivors, of course, of the worst decade in American history, the 1980s. Rude Awakening starred Cheech Marin and Eric Roberts, same plot. Flashback starred Dennis Hopper and Kiefer Sutherland. Dennis Hopper plays an Abby Hoffman-like character who comes back to teach an uptight FBI agent how to be a liberal activist. Uh, class Action with Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio and Gene Hackman. True Believer with James Woods and Robert Downey Jr. These are big studio films, expensive projects, one after another, <laughs> dead. Isn't it bizarre? Isn't it bizarre? This movie industry is market-driven. So what do we learn about the underlying culture of Hollywood? By the language, the insistence on foul language, by the hostility toward religion, by the addiction to solemn left-wing message movies. And I could give you many more examples, by the way. First on the language. What we learn is one element of the underlying Hollywood culture is the adolescent imperative. The need to remain a perpetual teenager. You know, didn't most of us go through a period when we were 11 or 12, you know, Holden Caulfield? I mean, most of us didn't use quite the language I use in films. But everybody talks dirty. It gets your parents angry. It's wonderful. Most people grow out of that. Not the people who are decision makers in Hollywood. This addiction to language, I think, reveals volumes about the fundamental immaturity behind the entire movie enterprise today. Secondly, religion, the hostility toward religion. This illustrates, it seems to me, the underlying emphasis on alienation. There's a sense in Hollywood that in order to be a serious artist, one must be an alienated artist. We must go back to our days in high school drama class where we all wore black turtlenecks and sipped strong coffee and talked about how bleak and meaningless and dishonest and hypocritical life was. You attack religion because it's a way that you can see Im seem embattled, dangerous, a rebel. You know, it's really tough to seem embattled when you drive a Rolls Royce, when you get $15 million per picture. And isn't it ridiculous? Here are these people who are at the pinnacle of our society in terms of their financial rewards, in terms of their achievement and their prominence, and they have this desperate need. The more money you pay them, the more money they make, the more they live in Beverly Hills and send their kids to private schools. I know a sensitive subject here. Um, the more that they do that, the more they need to attack conventional institutions 
in order to make it clear that we've kept faith with our roots as alienated, embittered, embattled, dangerous artists on the cutting edge. And what better institution to attack than religion? By golly, you know, if they didn't have Donald Wildman out there, they'd have to invent him. The primitive world of blood and flame is certainly still with us for anybody who goes to your local multiplex. And finally, this question of this addiction to solemn and soggy message movies. This, in the same way that the language reflects Hollywood's adolescent imperative, that the uh, hostility toward religion uh, reflects the emphasis on alienation, the infatuation with message movies reflects the industry's need to feel a sense of self-importance. The fact is that people in the business desperately want the respect of their peers. All artists are insecure. I think people who get up on stage or in front of a camera and impersonate somebody else, it's a particularly insecure, risky endeavor. This is why the Oscars are such a big thing today. You know, once upon a time, people had sort of a lighthearted attitude to the Oscars. Remember when Bob Hope, I mean, showing my age, used, used to host the Oscars? I mean, people, yeah, it was important for the business, but the business made fun of itself. And you know what the ultimate was in 1988 when Alan Carr choreographed the Oscars and they had this gigantic like golden calf effigy of Oscar and showing all these scantily clad dancers worshipping it. It was like an old orgy sequence from a DeMille movie. <laughs> but you, the reason the Oscars have become so important so why Sally Field gets up there a few years ago and says, you like me, you really like me. You need reassurance. You need assurance that you're good, that what you're doing is important and you know what? The more risky the prospect is, the more risky the proposition is, the more difficult it is to sell to the public, the more it seem to, seems to offend part of that great unwashed public's sensibilities, the more respect you can win from your peers. Back in studio with Will Baird, AEI film buff, and you raised an interesting point we were just discussing before about how the family friendlification of movies might have an unintended and negative uh, consequence on on our geopolitical standing uh, can you can you go into that a little bit yeah so one increasing trend in recent years has been uh, in in many realms of american life has been uh, china and chinese influence and china's actually had a very large influence on hollywood because it's a huge market and hollywood understandably being good capitalists want to sell it to that market but unlike the united states china does censor media and their concerns are things like, in, in addition to the portrayal of China in film, actually resulted in changes to the Top Gun remake. Well, I did not know that. Yeah, they changed uh, Tom Cruise's jacket, his flight jacket, from the original because the original had, I don't even remember what it was exactly, but it was some sort of anti-Chinese or it was about uh, like potential war with China. So that had to be, they had to change the jacket in the Top Gun remake. Uh, I'll still be seeing it. In addition to the kind of explicit geopolitical censorship, China also has pretty stringent requirements on things like language, uh, the amount and type of violence. So Chinese don't want very bloody violence. Um, so you can have a superhero movie where people are getting punched and explode and everything like that, but you never see anyone actually die. You never see any blood. The amount of like sex and like who can be obviously like in, in China they're not very pro homosexuality, and so those relationships get muffled or censored or removed in films that are marketed to China, and so. There is a way in which the most American thing we can do is demand that our movies become uh, more violent, more crass, more sexualized to really broadcast uh, 
you know, American soft freedom. Pow- soft power. Well, it's it's really we we are free, are free to, to explore. Exactly. Uh, that's you know yeah, so that's, that's that's a that's a China hawk hard hot take on the cultures of Hollywood. You know, I never thought that uh, I I would be nodding in agreement, uh, but but here we are now. Your discussion of China actually leads me to talk about one institution that has been both transgressive and geopolitically hawkish towards towards uh, China, and that's South Park, mm. uh, which which took on these issues head first in in decrying the uh, authoritarian Chinese Communist Party's clamping down on artistic freedom and freedom of all kinds, which raises South Park as a really interesting example of basically the major entertainment institution that does not explicitly wage war on traditional values so to speak its creators are more or less libertarian yeah they're they're not they're not they're hollywood progressives yeah. right right they want to offend everyone they're really staunch defenders of the freedom of speech and the freedom of expression mm-hmm. and and freedom of thought and belief as well mm-hmm. um yet the language in south park is uh Kind of crass. The yes. themes are kind of crass. Yes. Is, is there something to be said for that kind of? I, I mean, maybe maybe you've answered this already, but th- that kind of freedom crusade for its own sake, or or should we be aiming for entertainment that uh, is actually? <laughs> I don't know if it's possible, but entertainment that advances more traditional values is that is that kind of? Yeah. So fool's I, I think I think. South Park is incredibly important for the, all the reasons you stated, and I wish there were the – thing, the thing is you can't have everyone be like South Park. If everyone is trying to take everything down all the time, no one's trying to build anything up, then you, you're left with nothing, right? South Park isn't really a project of trying to build anything, which doesn't mean they're not incredibly useful. They are. It's a, it's a great show um, that can be very insightful. And I think, I think in part the juvenileness of South Park, when it really lands a punch, makes it that much more impactful because you have these guys who are – you know, playing with paper cutouts to have like a talking of human feces. Like if if those people can really nail you on an argument, then that's a, a pretty strong indictment of whatever it is you're trying to do. But again, like not everyone can do that. But if there were just you know one or two people in Hollywood who were had more of that kind of ethos of much more general skepticism, uh, I think that could be very healthy. I want to I want to make one more point about the the kind of movies that. We've seen in in recent years. Now you know much more about American cinema than I do, but uh, to me, it it seems a more recent phenomenon. The the movies that engage in a sort of it's not really nostalgic hero worship, but a little bit of deification of certain figures in order to inspire audiences to be better. And the the one that springs to mind now is there have been uh, a couple of Mister Rogers uh, films. Right there's there was a, a documentary. And then the the recent Tom Hanks movie, uh, and, and Mister Rogers is meant to be a, a paragon of virtue and and moderation. Uh, is, is that a meaningful, sustainable alternative to trying to uh, inculcate good virtue through more abstract forms of storytelling? What I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, if movies are used to teach lessons. Uh, or values, and they have been used to teach bad lessons and values uh, in in Medved's uh, appraisal, and I don't think you would entirely disagree. Uh, is is the answer is the antidote more Mister Rogers, or is there still hope for stories with better, more complex, more nuanced, and good messages? 
Yeah, I, I don't know that the biopic is the ideal medium for uh, con- conveying moral messages, um, in part because I think I think what makes when a story has a moral resonance, what often makes it really land is the ability to identify with the characters in the story. Um, right. I think some, Rogers, sometimes these make them feel like distant figures. Like, yeah. I, I will never be Mr. Rogers. Exactly. Mr. Rogers has, from all of his depictions, an almost unattainable level of kindness and generosity. So I think that for, for a movie to have a moral message that really sticks, it has to be much more, as you were saying, more abstract. Um, obviously not too abstract that there's no, the message is too hard to find. But, and also, also obviously, the, the more connected things are to real world events, the more you either have to glaze over things or it's easier just to say, well, like that was just that one time that it was a fluke. Whereas when you can, if you can construct a compelling narrative, it can be believable enough to convey a real message without being either indictable on gliding various facts or so unbelievable that you kind of disregard it. Right. You you don't want to simplify, you know, basically good people and people who did important and interesting things. Uh, by making them seem by papering over their their faults and flaws, I mean that that is kind of the, what makes a universalistic message work. Anyway, this has been uh, a fascinating conversation. Thank you for joining me, Will. I hope you enjoyed the Cultures of Hollywood with Michael Medved. Thank you for listening to the Bradley Lectures podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. The Bradley Lectures were given for more than a quarter century at AEI, thanks to the generous sponsorship of the Lyndon and Harry Bradley Foundation. AEI Senior Fellow Carlin Bowman and I hope you enjoy our revival of these lectures. If you do, please show your support by giving us a like and a comment and subscribing to our channel. And stay tuned for new episodes every other Monday as we bring the wisdom of the recent past to the most pressing issues of the present. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time on the Bradley Lectures Podcast.